Hello, I'm Michael Boland, a PhD researcher here at the UCC School of Law, and welcome to the UCC School of Law podcast. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Professor Irene Lynch-Fannon and Dr. Catherine O'Sullivan about the role of gender in creating corporate sustainability. Professor Lynch-Fannon is the co-editor of Creating Corporate Sustainability, Gender as an Agent for Change, a collection of essays examining perceptions and participation of women in business. Among the many internationally renowned female scholars who contributed to the collection is Dr. Catherine O'Sullivan, whose essay challenges, amongst other issues, a popular media-driven narrative questioning whether the economic crash would have happened if there were more women in senior management positions in corporations and banks. Professor Lynch-Fannon and Dr. O'Sullivan, you're both very welcome, and thank you for joining me. Uh, to begin with you, Professor Lynch-Fannon, how did this collection of essays come about? Um, hello, Michael. Well, the, this collection of essays came about as a result of my engagement with a sustainability scholar based at the Faculty of Law at Oslo University, um, Beata Sjofel, and um, we share a common understanding in relation to the role of the modern corporation and the regulation of the modern corporation. But we also share a common experience in relation to being female academics trying to operate in a predominantly male part of academia. And as a result, we also have an interest in gender equality and the role of female business scholars. So to cut a long story short, we are both part of a network of female business scholars called the Daughters of Themis, which was started by Professor Beata Schofel and is operated by her and Dr. Roseanne Russell, amongst other female scholars at Bristol University. So we gather for yearly meetings and one of the yearly meetings uh, happened to have a lot of contributions in it, which had a number of common themes. But one of them was the role of women in relation to business management, but also in relation to activism, in relation to corporate actions. So we identified three different ideas. One about the role of women and gender equality, broadly speaking, the second about corporate power and an assessment of the modern corporation. And the third and really most important in terms of challenges facing society is the idea of sustainability and sustainable development. So we tried to link those three themes together and then sought expressions of interest from our network of female business scholars, and then brought others into the collection of essays, including Catherine O'Sullivan, um, who has written this wonderful chapter, which I think you're going to talk to her about. Um, and so that's how it came about. And then the Cambridge University Press agreed to publish it. And we had um, a very efficient publishing process. So that all worked very well. And it was published in 2018. And Dr. O'Sullivan, your contribution really ties in with these three goals identified by Professor Lynch-Fannon, the role of women and gender equality, corporate power and sustainability. And you speak about these goals in the context of, amongst other issues, the economic crash, saying that it isn't enough just to involve women in corporate governance structures, but that organisations must take measures to change underlying 
gendered business cultures. Yes, um, and this is because the sociological literature shows us that people adapt their behaviour in order to fit into whichever groups they are with and what the dominant behaviour is within that group. And we know this from our own experience. We don't actually need research to tell us this. We know we behave one way in work, we behave another way with our friends, we behave another way with our families. Uh, and behaviour that we would regard as being acceptable in one context, we would never dream of doing in another context. So um, from our own personal experiences, we know that we adapt who we are, how we present ourselves in different social situations. And in the context or the social situation of the of the corporation, there are particular forms of behaviour that are encouraged or condoned. Uh, and one of the ways in which criminological research and sociological research is very interested in this is in the ways in which those preferred performances are gendered as male um, and how that gendering impacts negatively on society. And amongst those stereotypical male qualities is, amongst other things, working long hours, the fact that the corporation is focused towards wealth maximisation. All of these are masculine and therefore undermine the role of women in the corporation. Yes, and I think it's very important to make that distinction between um, men, women, feminine, masculine, that behaviours are coded as being masculine or feminine, but they are not necessarily the sole preserve of either men or women, and that they are behaviours that can be adopted by people wanting to succeed in the particular environment in which they are behaving. And one of the key points that I wanted to make uh, in, in, my, in my chapter was to talk about the fact that... Um, if we just add women into existing corporate structures and the corporate environment without actually changing the underlying gendered masculine nature of the corporation, we are not in fact going to do anything because women uh, who want to succeed in the corporate environment will adopt those behaviours that are the indicators of success which are behaviours that lead to problems in corporate governance, in the promotion of uh, dangerous, reckless behaviour. And if women are unhappy with those behaviours, they are more likely to exit corporate structures. And we see a huge amount of litigation in response to very problematic sexist behaviour in corporations at various sectors. And you hear about it in, in, in all sorts of media in relation to, you know, the, the bro culture in various um, masculine dominated industries. And a lot of this masculinity is exerted through discursive practices as well as you identify in your chapter. So clearly this masculine behaviour does lead to increased risk taking and can also lead to corporate crime. But what are the prospects for sustainability of this gendered corporation, this gendered male corporation? Well, I suppose um, to maybe focus on the first part of your question, which is this idea of, you know, it leading to corporate crime. Um, I suppose one of the problems that we have is that our understanding of corporate success is a very limited understanding and very much focused on wealth generation, um, both personal wealth generation and company wealth generation. And uh, risk taking behaviour then, both licit and illicit becomes recast as innovation and rewarded, and it allows uh, individuals to achieve success uh, in that very narrow economic understanding of it. And corporations actually encourage risk-taking because they link promotion uh, to 
those who are generating the most profits for them. And if you find it difficult to attain profit through legitimate means, well, then you will try to seek it through illegitimate means. So the very nature of the promotion and rewarding of success in business is geared towards that sort of behaviour. Uh, and it, it makes illegitimate means of achieving profit attractive. Uh, and if you are then part of a broader societal culture or in a business where you think that everyone else is doing it, that it's normal to, to bend the rules, and in fact bending the rules and, and finding loopholes is actually encouraged, well then you're going to find it very easy to firstly justify you know, bending the rules and then it's a short step from bending the rules to breaking them. So yes, uh, our current business cultures certainly do encourage risk-taking and do encourage criminality. And then, of course, companies themselves are partly responsible for that. And I would imagine as well myself that because of the, as you discuss in your chapter, their pervasive masculine hegemonies within the corporation, all things that are, would be associated with sustainability like ethics, care, responsibility, even, dare I say, you know, respect for one's colleagues, they are all considered feminine qualities and therefore could not exist within the masculine hegemonies because they would have an emasculating effect. Yeah, absolutely. And you see as well that that carries through in the way in which uh, men police other men in corporate environments that you are discouraged from articulating those types of concerns because that is not what being in business is supposed to be about. Being in business is supposed to be about profit maximization. Um, so if you talk about environmental concerns or broader sustainability concerns, you are not a true business person. And by business person, I mean businessman. Professor Lynch Fannin, you also talk about the role of society in influencing corporate culture and how the corporation is then impacting on society. Could you tell us about what you mean by that and how the corporation is impacting society? Well, as Catherine has been saying, it's it's really all about corporate culture. And so as far as a corporate lawyer or a corporate law theorist like me is concerned, we all accept this concept of shareholder primacy. But what has happened is given this sort of gendered maleness, which is not necessarily the sort of way men behave, um, this has been translated into wealth maximisation at all costs. And so leaving aside the question of criminality, this leads to a sort of a gutsy business culture where executive remuneration is exponentially larger than ordinary salaries in a corporation. Employee exploitation is acceptable. So there is this constant search for the cheapest goods, the cheapest labour all across the globe. And also this sort of lack of um, care about the environment. So the exploitation of the environment all sort of created in a societal acceptance that if you, as Catherine says, are a true business person and really understand the motivations of business, these are things that only the soft guys care about. And that is really very difficult. But when you're trying to accept the challenge to change corporate culture, one of the things that I feel very strongly about is this phrase I often use, that law matters. Because even if you have a legal framework which is sometimes laughed at or not enforced as much, over time, law matters and changes cultures. 
So if you think of gender equality as an example, no self-respecting business person will stand up and say, oh, we're not going to pay women the same as men because it's now not acceptable to say that. And the law has actually created that environment. Now, whether the law is flouted is another matter, but law does matter over time. So that's one thing. But I have also begun to rethink the role of corporate social responsibility, because if we think of sustainable development, we have a raft of environmental laws also. And so people will not now stand up and say they pollute at large and what's wrong with that. But nevertheless, they do. But that said, we have a framework that makes things unacceptable. And now we can add into that this sort of movement where we are saying, in addition to regulation, you've got to be ethical. And so I think we need to revisit corporate social responsibility and tie it in more with its power to change social norms rather than what it has been to this point an excuse for not regulating. I would agree with that myself because I think that corporate social responsibility has been confused in the past. We're talking about matters of diversity and environmental matters. They were heretofore under the umbrella of CSR, but now they're in regulation. So when it comes to acting in a corporate social responsible way, there's confusion over what that means because it has been usurped, if you will, by the role of regulation. But despite all of these regulations, Professor Lynch-Fannon, that both incentivize the inclusion of women on boards and also incentivize sustainability generally, you express surprise in your chapter over the fact that they are not being taken up. Yeah, so um, just in relation to this sort of uh, law matters versus CSR or how we resolve this uh, or or rethink this uh, approach, My chapter in this book is entitled A Toad We Have to Swallow, and it is about the proposal from the European Commission to oblige member states to have laws in place to include women on boards as non-executive directors. And in the EU Parliament, one of the pro-business German MEPs Uh, made the statement that this would be a toad we have to swallow just in a way to keep the women happy or to keep the commission happy. But in fact, it has been really resisted. And very interestingly, as I think Catherine sort of alluded to, a lot of women who are businesswomen have... um, collaborated in this resistance by gladly joining clubs that are called the 30% Club or these sort of voluntary movements to include women on boards. But that's the problem with corporate social responsibility. As Noam Chomsky very famously described it, it has been hijacked by those who are resistant to regulation. And the reason I'm surprised about all this fuss about this directive is that there has been so much regulation of the corporation to achieve gender equality that this little directive has become the battleground for people who are wanting to resist regulation. They don't give a fiddlers about whether there are women on boards. It's the resistance to the regulation that is really the issue. 
It's interesting how a lot of these directives from the EU are saying that we need gender diversity on the non-executive boards, which isn't really then achieving gender equality at all, because you're, it's so fine to have a male-dominated corporate board, but then on the non-executive boards we can have more women. Absolutely, Michael. And that's the point. It's a battleground about a nothing thing because a non-executive board member who can be anybody from Lord whatever to uh, somebody who's barely 18 and has a title, that is not where the core of management of companies actually happens. So this really is an issue not about getting women on boards, but about a resistance to regulation. What about the examples that we have from Bangladesh and from Ghana, which are in your book as well, showing the role of women in creating corporate sustainability from the bottom up? So therefore suggesting that regulation is superfluous. Well, what we found when we were all very excited as our female business scholars going to be talking about changing the corporation and making it so sustainable, when we actually looked at the range of contributions, we realised that the most powerful stories in terms of changing corporate action were the stories about women activists in um, disadvantaged countries or developing economies such as Ghana, Bangladesh, where the women were often very powerful as social actors in terms of changing and persuading corporations to act. But regulation is not superfluous. It just was we found to our dismay that it was these women, the Bangladeshi garment workers, the women of the Ogoni tribe in the uh, Niger Delta, that were more willing to be brave about changing corporate culture as compared with the people that I have been talking about, the women who accidentally perhaps join the 30% club rather than saying to their corporate colleagues, well, what's wrong with the directive? This sort of anti-quota type of approach. So to be truthful, regulation is not superfluous there's no reason why we can't have both. So you're adopting or calling for a hybrid of both the public and private debate, the public being the public corporation being one that is happy to accept regulation from the state, whereas the private corporation unhappy to accept such regulation and preferring to sort out their affairs internally. So you're suggesting we now need a hybrid of the two. Yes, so um, corporate law theorists like myself divide into two supposed camps. One is the idea that the corporation is a creature of public law because you wouldn't have corporations without the state allowing people to create this business vehicle. And then on the other hand, the law, corporate law theorists who say, well, the corporation is a private actor and should not be regulated to achieve social ends. As it happens, in continental Europe, and in fact, therefore, in relation to EU social policy, it is very much assumed that the corporation is a public actor and can be regulated to achieve social ends, for example, gender equality or um, sustainable development goals such as um, the creation of good jobs, uh, quality jobs, which is part of EU social policy as well. Whereas it's more 
for want of a better word, Anglo-American to describe in theoretical terms the idea that the corporation is a private actor and should not therefore be regulated to achieve social ends. This is a debate that has become polarised, as you have pointed out. Um, But certainly that polarising of the debate is somewhat imaginary and theoretical because in reality, of course, corporations are regulated all the time to ensure there isn't crime, there isn't securities fraud, all sorts of different things, environmental pollution. So all of a sudden digging up this idea that the corporation should not be regulated to achieve social ends, it's like taking a little silver revolver out of your back pocket and deciding you're going to shoot this particular thing uh, because it doesn't suit. And the EU directive on asking to have women on boards as non-executive directors is exactly the sort of event where the little revolver comes out and people say outrageous things like this is a toad we have to swallow because it plays well to your business community that have elected you back home in Germany as an MEP, I suppose. Dr O'Sullivan, this is something that you also touch on in your essay where you argue that corporations are part of corporate and societal culture and as such, they will respond to norm-setting cues in their social environment. Yes. Basically, my position is that cultures are are not set in stone. Uh, It can be very difficult to change cultures, but they are transformable, and they evolve in response to internal and external pressures. We see this, for instance, at the moment in discussions around Me Too. This is the most current example of of this. Um, So there is actually very good reason to be hopeful that corporate actors would be very likely to respond to norm-setting cues, both within their institution through the means of various forms of conduct, codes of conduct that they could set up for themselves, and also outside of it by means of the types of regulations that Irene has been talking about, so designed to nudge them towards socially, economically and environmentally sustainable behaviour. And one of the reasons why this corporate actors seem to me to be ideal candidates for this type of behaviour is because they tend to be professionals who have invested time and effort in order to attain success through respectable means, namely through the attainment of employment in the corporate sector. Uh, And respectability is a desirable piece of capital, to put it in business terms. And the promotion of particular ways of attaining it can nudge individuals towards acting in those ways. So you're suggesting that, as you say, culture is not set in stone. We know this, Professor Lynch-Fannon, from the case law suggesting that even for-profit corporations can undertake other socially responsible endeavours as well. And Dr O'Sullivan, you are then saying that corporations can respond to shifting social norms as a result. So the next question is, Have they done so successfully, do you think? Um, In my opinion, not yet. Uh, And this is because the two key solutions that have been proposed as a means of doing so actually sustain the problematic gendering of corporate culture rather than changing it or challenging it. Um, The first is evidenced in the idea that corporate governance structures can be improved simply by adding women and stirring. By that I mean um, that if you just add more women into corporate structures, well then the behaviour of the corporation will change. But as I already said, it's far more likely that the behaviour of the women themselves will change or else the women will leave the corporate culture. 
The second main solution has been the push of the business case for gender equality. This is an argument that companies with more women in them, particularly at board level, are more profitable. But as I've noted already, the focus on economic profit, almost to the exclusion of everything else, is one of the reasons why we're in the precise quandary that we currently are in. And in many ways, this focus on economic profit is counter to the goal of sustainability in more properly and broadly understood. And it's interesting about that business case for gender equality debate. I noted from reading the chapters on Bangladesh and Ghana, in particular the one on Bangladesh where Lorraine Talbot was discussing the Bangladesh Accord of 2013, which was a response to the Rana Plaza catastrophe. And what was interesting is that the business case both incentivized corporations to adopt the Bangladesh Accord, but also it was the business case which prevented the Bangladesh Accord from reaching its full potential because it relied on the supplier companies, the factories, to report on the signatory companies, the global retail brands, if they were not complying with the accord. Although then they said, we cannot do that because the global retail brand will go somewhere else to get their clothes uh, manufactured or whatever the case may be. So there it's suggesting the business case both incentivizes and disincentivizes uh, the use of the Bangladesh Accord and CSR practice more generally. Um, Professor Lynch-Fannon, how can corporate legal frameworks be changed to achieve sustainability? Well, there are lots of ways that corporate legal frameworks could be changed. But I think that one of the arguments that is made very powerfully actually by Victoria Baumfeld in her chapter is that in fact, when we have made attempts to uh, provide or where attempts have been made to provide different uh, frameworks for corporations like the one that is used in the United States, the hybrid B. It's a type of corporation where uh, the structure, the ownership structure is changed to provide for more sort of what's called socially conscious investment. Victoria's argument is that actually that these alternative business frameworks are not a good idea because actually corporate law itself and the ordinary legal framework for corporations allows a corporation to be run in such a way that it is not profit at all costs. It's the all costs bit that is the problematic bit. So when you're talking about the business case in relation to Bangladesh, um, the argument is always used that if you regulate too much, this is going to be bad for business. But this really is a very false argument. And so Victoria and I and the various other female business scholars, our view, Carol Lau would be somebody else. Our view is, in fact, that the current structure of a corporation allows for its management to make discretionary decisions to create a corporation which does generate wealth for its shareholders, but not at all costs. The part of what you're doing is also creating good jobs. Part of what you're doing is also creating quality products. And the area that I am particularly interested in at the moment is what we call ethical supply chains, because I know from talking to business people and corporate management that there is no way that they don't have full information about their supply chains. 
but that reality is cloaked in some sort of mythology when it comes to their customers. So when we are all shopping around at Christmas, we could be much more activist as consumers. We could be saying, well, where are these clothes exactly made? Why are they so cheap or why are they so expensive? Actually, it it isn't really fast fashion only that exploits workers across a long supply chain. And the answers are not readily available, but we can change the law so the answers should be readily available in the same way that when I was growing up, the calorie content of your average Christmas cake wouldn't be plastered all over the box. But now it is. So now we could have a different complete care label for our clothes, which would show us where it was made, for how much and how much were the shipping costs and what and all of those things that we could then decide about. It occurs to me that one of the problems then is how we measure corporate performance. And I think because the stock market only reflects positive externalities and if it's going to reflect any bad news, it would only take into account the views of the, we'll say, visible stakeholders, not the invisible stakeholders like the environment. So even though we criticised here today some of the reforms introduced by the EU, one which was quite progressive perhaps was the EU Directive on the Disclosure of Non-Financial and Diversity Information, otherwise known as Triple Bottom Line Reporting, which is allowing investors to really dig deep into the corporation and see how is this corporation doing environmentally? How is it measuring up on gender matters. So therefore, Professor Lynch Fannin, that is kind of providing us with those answers that you're saying we so need. Um, yes. And in the book, Jill North, an Australian academic, is writing about the effectiveness of these disclosure obligations. Now, in this context, we had a variety of opinions around our Daughters of Themis um, conference table. And that, on the one hand, some of us would think this is a start and others thought it was risable. And I think this brings us back to Catherine's concern with corporate crime and corporate malpractice, which is sort of beyond whether you're socially responsible or not. And that is that there is significant research which indicates that these triple bottom line reporting obligations are inadequate because effectively people cheat on them. My answer to that would be over time, law matters. It changes cultures. So if you've got legal obligations to engage in triple bottom line reporting, at least it gets people thinking about what else they can do. Dr O'Sullivan, could I ask you the same question about how we can achieve that sustainability, in your case, social sustainability, i.e. gender diversity? Well, I suppose I kind of like to draw on the idea of the socially responsible company, which is uh, something that had been uh, promoted by um, Gobert and Punch. And what they argue for is, and this goes back to something that Irene was saying earlier on, and that kind of distinction between the public and private idea. And they argue that because companies are given abilities to function and conduct business in society, then there can be a quid pro quo, in a sense, of demanding from them certain things in exchange, such as ensuring that there is diversity uh, in a meaningful way and that that diversity is respected. And one of the things that I think is very important to, to bear in mind is that if companies do, in fact, adopt various codes of practice, which would 
be critical or quash problematic behaviours, such as the types of things I describe in in, in my chapter involving uh, sexist, racist language, um, so-called banter, which in fact is discriminatory and designed to be derogatory and to put people in their place and remind them of you know hierarchies and so on, that if those behaviours are captured by codes of conduct and can be dealt with internally, well, then you are actually creating a corporate culture that is going to be more diverse and more inclusive by definition. And it's going to be a place where women and others who come into corporations will actually want to stay in those corporations and would, will want to succeed in those corporations in ways that are sustainable and and so on. Um, so it isn't just about adding women in, it's about creating an environment in which when women are there, that they will actually want to stay. And I think that's 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 a key way of, of doing it. That idea of, again, as Irene's saying, law matters. And we as lawyers often think of legal regulation in this very specific way in terms of top down. But there can be uh, informal codes of practice which perform that the law setting uh, cues within internal business transactions. I agree. And that is one of the reasons why I disagree with the idea of gender quotas, both in the company, but also in politics, because you cannot necessarily, as you say, Dr. O'Sullivan, add women and stir, because that's exactly, in my view, what gender quotas are doing. Well, there are some arguments in relation to gender quotas uh, that I think there, there is some merit in relation to gender quotas. But I, I, I do think that uh, gender quotas alone are not going to change things, that there has to be a real discussion as to what is the culture that is being promoted in a particular environment that is deterring diversity within that particular uh, employment or that sector. Finally, to my own opinion is the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And I think that while they are good and they are much lauded by our own president and his wife, who was speaking here recently in UCC about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, amongst other things, it's interesting how in Goal 8 there is a focus on economic growth, whereas the other goals, including Goal 5, is talking about uh, gender equality. Although when you put the two of them together you're not really going to be achieving gender equality and diversity at all um, because it seems that these goals predicate sustainability and economic growth. And the risk is that social or environmental initiatives will become subservient to economic growth and they will fail absent a showing of a productivity advantage. That's my own opinion. So while the sustainable development goals are good, they're a good step forward, I think that they also have flaws within them as well. Now, <laughs> do you want to say something? Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I need to go back to quotas. So the problem with this idea that quotas is supported by a business case or an outcome based view is problematic. The reason quotas are justifiable is your starting point totally different. And it's not about diversity. This is equality. There are 50% of the world are women and girls. And what the EU directive on quotas is trying to do in relation to business is exactly what the quota legislation in relation to political participation is trying to do in politics. And that is that because of the range of difficulties that women have faced. We cannot get there without some help in the same way that without equality, 
legislation in relation to equal pay and access, women would not have got as far as they have gotten already in relation to work and employment opportunities. And so this is exactly what the commissioner said um, in relation to the EU quotas. If we just leave it to society, women will not achieve this equality until I think it was 2090 or something like that. And the problem is that it's not that this is good for business, it's that you're losing all this European investment in education and skills by not encouraging women to participate in public life, whether it's business or politics. So it's not an outcome-based um, view. It's actually reflecting in some ways the idea that we're losing talent and skill to, from, from public life. Um, so that's one part. Just in relation to your observation about sustainability and development and these and social goods, there is a very succinct argument that um, policymakers will make that development in terms of economic development seems to be a necessary backdrop to the achievement of equality and diversity, which I would distinguish from each other. Um, and so there is that ongoing debate about how the UN has presented these sustainability goals. But one of the goals it does actually mention is the elimination of poverty. And when you read the, um, the goals in more detail, it talks about the creation of sustainable employment, not any old job, but good jobs and the elimination of poverty. So there is this ongoing debate about the balance, as you have mentioned, Michael. So uh, we'll see how that goes. So I think what we can gather is that regulation is necessary in order to achieve this gender equality and diversity that we've been speaking about, but also sustainability. And without regulation relying purely on social change, we'd be waiting a very long time is the message I think that we're getting today. We'll leave it there. I'd like to extend my sincere thanks to both Professor Irene Lynch-Fannon and to Dr. Catherine O'Sullivan for joining me today on the UCC School of Law podcast. You can purchase Creating Corporate Sustainability, Gender as an Agent for Change from Cambridge University Press. The publication Board Agenda will also feature an article by Dr. O'Sullivan in which she expands on some of the issues we discussed here. Remember, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can subscribe to future episodes via your podcast provider. I'm Michael Boland. Thank you for listening.